Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so we can know what to believe, rightly dividing the Word of God. It's our desire to find out what God's Word says and then to determine what we believe. Uh, We all have our predisposed positions, uh, yet we want to be able to challenge them and find out what exactly the Word says. We want to make sure that we rightly divide it. Um, Be like the Bereans who search the Scriptures, who receive the Word of God with all joy, but search the Scriptures to find out whether or not these things were true. Our first question comes from a question that was left at our last Q&A near the end, and it's from Kimberly. And uh, Empress Kimberly says, "Um, I can't find anything in the Bible, what the Bible says about uh, God's love Well, let me start this over again. I can't find anywhere in the Bible that says God's love is unconditional, except God is love. I don't, it did, but it didn't, uh, but it doesn't mean he loves unconditionally. Um, I find the opposite, actually. All right, thoughts, then you say, Kimberly. So, thank you, Kimberly, for uh, sharing that. Um, So, does God love unconditionally? And when we think about especially agape love, the New Testament word for love, it means to choose to love. It's a decision to love someone. And we get a definition of that in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And I think that we could we could look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and apply that completely and totally to God. That God is all of those things that that says towards us, and his desire and his heart is for each one of us. Uh, but as far as unconditional love, sorry, i trying to get a couple of things done here. Um, as far as the unconditional love of God, I think it's pretty clear. The Bible says in, in Romans 5, 8, says that God demonstrated his love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That was a demonstration of love why we were still sinners. And that's a love that is unconditional. But there's passages like Psalms 5.5 and Malachi, which tells us that God hates the workers of iniquity. Malachi, Esau I have hated, but Jacob I have loved. And interestingly enough, when we get back to the question, is God's love unconditional? It puts us right back into the argument uh, that is a Calvinistic argument. If uh, you're going to talk to a Calvinist, they're going to say God's love is definitely conditional. That God chose before the foundations of the world those who would be saved and those who would not be saved. Those who are not Calvinistic believe that God loves the world and has given men a choice to believe. And if you believe, then you are chosen. And if you don't believe, uh, then you're not chosen. So it does come back into the whole idea of condition of, of, of a Calvinist position as to whether or not the, the, the love of God is conditional. I believe that the love of God is, is unconditional. That he created man, he loves them, and the passage out of uh, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, really does speak of the kind of God that he is, and that he does, I'm going to pull that up for you, that he does love in this manner. And we start in verse 4, where it says, Love is kind, our love suffers long, as kind, does not envy, does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, 
is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. So I think all of these can be applied to God and to a person. Now what about the passage that says God hates all of the workers of iniquity? The word therefore hate in the Greek can be translated and most often is translated enemy. And there's a passage that tells us that that Israel became an enemy or God began to hate them. And I want to show you this one too. Uh, this is Hosea 9.15. All the wickedness is in Gilgal, for there they I hated them because of the evil deeds. I will drive them from my house. I will love them no more. All of their princes are rebellious. That's Hosea 9.11. And Ezekiel 18.32 says, For I have no pleasure in the death of the one who dies, says the Lord, therefore turn and live. So God's desire is still that people would turn and live, but people do, be, do do things that puts them into the camp of an enemy of God, where God says, there they have become my enemy. But the conditional love of God, that God loves and wants people to turn, or the unconditional love of God that God loves and wants people to be able to turn and follow him, I believe is uh, true Kimberly. And I think that we can go back and we can look and see exactly um, what the Bible has to say about it and shows, I mean, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him would not perish. There's a love for the world. Uh, God says, I have no, I have, I take no joy in the death of the wicked turn from your sin and live. And so God's desire is that we would turn uh, from that sin and live. All right. So hopefully that, that helps. Um, Kimberly, I see you're on here. Uh, you're welcome. If you have um, a follow-up on that, I'm not sure exactly how clear I had. A little, few, few little technical difficulties here in the beginning. So if it's not that clear, Kimberly, just go ahead and ask a follow-up. Uh, we have a question from Jari. Jari, good to see you. Good to have you here. Uh, if you are here for the first time, glad to have you. You can ask a question about anything biblical, um, apologetics, prophecy, uh, anything about Christian living. Uh, just put the word question in front of your question, then write out your question, reread it, make sure it makes sense, and then go ahead and submit it. So Jari says, follow up on suffering. Is it true God restores us? Um, heard a Pentecostal preacher uh, that we will get back just like Job did. If cancer comes, you'll beat it. House lost, you will get two homes. Um, okay, Jari, yeah, thanks. Uh, I'm still looking at your question here, Jari. I'm just going to go ahead and get it off the screen. Um, so, Jari, unfortunately, the Pentecostal charismatic churches are plagued with this false doctrine of the prosperity movement, that God wants you rich that God's desire is that you would never be sick and that you would always be wealthy. Uh, and they go back and take some Old Testament passages that deal with uh, the Old Covenant and they try to bring them into the New Testament to be able to hang on to them. Uh, they ignore certain passages about suffering, about in this world you're going to have trouble. Consider it all in joy when you encounter various trials. Don't be surprised that you encounter fiery trials. Um, but blessed are you when men persecute you. Uh, and there's nothing in the Bible that says anything about being rich. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I'll show you this passage here because I think it's really important. Because the first time that I ever 
was exposed to this. I was 19 years old. I was attending a four-square church, which is a Pentecostal church. Um, they, they invited, no, we, they got a satellite. And we watched some satellites in from, I'm, if I remember right, it was Kenneth Hagin. It, it might have been another faith group. might have been another prosperity movement thing. Um, but I remember talking with someone afterwards, and they were just like, isn't this amazing? God really wants us to be, be rich, and God really wants us to be healthy. And all we have to do is have enough faith, learn to walk in faith, and we'll be able to receive it. And my initial thought was, yeah, this is pretty amazing. I want to be rich, and God wants me rich. But then as I drove home in my 1972 Vega, by the way, uh, I began to remember something. Something seemed off about it. And I began to remember that the Bible said, if anybody teaches godliness as a means of financial gain, then withdraw yourself from them. And um, I went home and started looking it up and I found it. And here's what, I don't want to show this to you, Jari. Here's what 1 Timothy Six says, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt mind, destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Now that's financial gain. It says, from such, withdraw yourself. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and it's certain that we will carry nothing out of it. And having food and clothing with these things, we should be content. Now, I wish that God would add in food, clothing, car, and a house. But with food and clothing, we should be content. So, Jaria makes it very clear uh, in, First in um, First Timothy chapter 6, that if someone teaches godliness as a means of financial gain to separate yourself from them, to get out from under that teaching. Now, I think there's a lot of really good Pentecostal churches, charismatic churches. I think there's a lot that handle the Bible really well. Um, but I think they are prone to believe that someone gets a revelation from God. And so, they aren't necessarily looking always for biblical um, evidence for what they believe. And I think that that causes problems. Uh, and um, I believe in, in the, the gift of the Holy Spirit today. I believe the Holy Spirit comes upon believers and empowers them. But I also believe that you can have difficulties and problems if you're listening to your heart or you're listening to yourself or you're listening for a voice or you're believing that somebody can get a revelation from God and so God came and showed up to somebody or Jesus came and talked to somebody in a hospital and then they start teaching something that is ungodly. That God, that, that you're sick because you don't have enough faith is just a wicked teaching. And I've seen people that have been prayed for, not healed, rejected because they don't want someone at their church that is in a wheelchair or that has some kind of sickness because they're teaching that you have sin in your life if you have that. And so that person ends up being shunned. I'm not saying all prosperity churches do that. By no means do I want to paint such a broad brush that I would paint everybody into that corner. But I think it is a devastating teaching instead of God does heal and does do miracles and God heals some and does in others. And God used miracles in the Bible in clusters around Jesus, around the apostles, around the prophets, Elijah and Elisha, around Moses and the creation of the world. And that God can do anything. And that some 
God wants to be rich. The Bible says, tell those who are rich among you not to trust in the uncertainty of riches, but be, be willing to share. And others, God has chosen not to. And that's up to God. That's God's decision uh, to make that. And um, I would I would get as far away from that teaching, Jari, as you possibly can, because it is as unbiblical as it can be. And if someone is teaching godliness as a means of financial gain, then withdraw yourself from them. And um, that's scriptural. That's biblical. Get away from them. Um, and um, so I don't know who you're talking to or what you're hearing um, that says that, but I would get away from it. Um, it's certainly not true. Now we have a question from Psychman. Psychman says, I'm good to see you, Psychman. Uh, the crowd from the Trib in Revelation 7-9 says, uh, the crowd from the Trib in Revelation 7-9. I'm trying to find Revelation. Let me look at um, Revelation 7-9. Well, let me just you were shooting this, maybe I can figure it out. It says their number is great. The clad in white robes, right, okay, it's after the 144,000 are sealed, holding the palm branches and significance to these, any significance, any else, uh, any significance to these branches, anything else you can add. Thanks, Mr. Robert. Thank you, uh, Psych Man. I appreciate that. Um, so let's take a look. Let's go to Revelation 7, and I think verse, uh, well, let's go to verse 9. Um, so, Revelation has a, a pattern to it. You have the vision of Jesus in chapter 1. You have the letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. You've got the heavenly scenes in verses 4 and 5 which I believe that the rapture happens at the beginning of verse 4. This is the open door that God told the church at Philadelphia that he was going to open a door for them that no one could shut. And then in verse 1, John sees a door open in heaven and hears a voice like a trumpet saying, come up here. And when he gets up into heaven, there's the heavenly visions. And there's a great crowd that's before the throne. And then after that, the tribulation period starts with the Lamb of God taking the scroll and beginning to open the seals, there are seven of them sealing it shut, and, and he's worthy to take the scroll, which I think is the title deed of the earth, and he begins to open up the seven scrolls. Then out of the seven scrolls come seven trumpets, and then there are seven bowls at the end. And then in between those, periodically, without a pattern, are parenthetical or intermittent passages which give us more information which help us to see something that's happening either in heaven or on the earth. It doesn't fit into the opening of a seal or the sounding of a, of a trumpet or a bowl. And the trumpets, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls are events and, um, and, and judgments. They're both. Sometimes a seal is opened up and it's an event. Sometimes it's a judgment. And so this takes place here in Revelation chapter 7 after the sixth seal is opened. So you've got the sixth seal open. I want to make sure that's right. Um, yeah, the sixth seal is opened. There are there's a great earthquake, and men hide from the fear of the of the of the the wrath for the hide from the wrath of the Lamb. And then we have four angels that are by the corners of the earth, ready to stop the wind from blowing on the earth and damage the earth. And another angel says, "Stop! You got to seal the 144,000 first. So there's 144,000 from Israel." that are sealed. We learn more about them in the study that we're doing tonight in chapter 14 of the book of Revelation. 
And then after the 144,000 are sealed, it says in verse 9, after these things I looked, oh, let me go ahead and put this up on the screen for you. After these things I looked, and a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, people, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb of God, clothed with white robes, with palm branches uh, in their hands. Um, I connect the palm branches back to hailing Jesus as King on Palm Sunday. Um, and I, I remember doing more of a study on palm branches and what they meant in the ancient world. But it basically, uh, when, when someone would ride in as king, they would use palm branches and cry now with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb and to all the angels around the throne and to the elders and the four living creatures fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving, honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the, one, uh, the ones who came out of the great tribulation, washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore you are before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in the temple, and who sit on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger no more, nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them in the fountains of water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So I think, Psych Man, that these, this, this way, I think, Psych Man, that these are those that are, are, that are immediately fall, that come to Christ and then become martyrs in the tribulation period. We have the first four seals that are torn, then you've got the sixth seal, and there's there's all of a sudden um, cosmic destruction that's happening. I believe that the rapture has happened before it, and I believe that these are people in the tribulation period uh, who are now before the throne of God. They have gave their lives to Christ after the, the church was taken up out of the way, and these are tribulation saints. Um, and that's, that's whom I believe that they are. Um, there are going to be, and, and, and I'm sure we'll get into talking about it um, at some point, um, the, the whole idea that this is pre-wrath and this is the rapture after, after the wrath. Um, I'm sure we'll get into talking about that, but I don't believe that's who this is, and um, there are reasons for that that we can get into if you want to. Um, but this is... Um, those who are with the, the, the Lamb of God here uh, that are taken out of the tribulation period. And I think the things at the end of it talk about the sufferings that they had while they were in the tribulation period. Now, the seventh seal, the very next chapter, we'll get into what the seventh seal is. All right. Thank you very much, Psych Man. I appreciate that. And of course, um, we'll take your follow-up if you have one. All right. So, um, Justin has a question. Justice says, I was raised a Christian. I have never been baptized. Should I get baptized? Um, yes, definitely, Justin. Let's, um, let's think about this in a couple of different ways. Uh, first of all, Jesus showed us the importance of baptism by himself being baptized. When there was no sin in him, he identified with us 
and gave us the example for us to be baptized. For him, it spoke of his death and resurrection, that he was going to die for us and rise from the dead. And when he came up out of the water, it was a sign of him beginning his ministry, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, or the Father and the Spirit bearing him witness with the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Then at the end of his ministry, Jesus said in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me and go out into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, commanding them to do all, or teaching them to do all the things that I have commanded you. So a couple of things about the Great Commission. Number one, we're making disciples. We're not making casual Christians. We're making disciples who are going to lay down their lives, pick up their cross, and follow him. Number two, we are called to baptize them. Go out and make, all, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So you need to be baptized. Now, baptism is not salvation. It is a symbol, according to Romans 6, of going under the water, and now you are no longer living for yourself, but you're living for him, and coming out of the water, and now living in the newness of life that God has given you. And he wants you to have that milestone. Uh, Justin and I often baptize people that have been Christians for 30 years. And they now are feeling compelled uh, to get baptized. And so, yes, um, be baptized. And, um, and, and look for the first opportunity that you can. And for anyone who's listening, um, I was baptized as an infant in the Methodist church. It didn't hurt me, but it didn't do what baptism was meant to do. When I gave my life to Christ at 14 years old, we felt we needed to be baptized. And we went to our pastor. He said we didn't need to be baptized. We kind of looked at the passages with him that said it did, and he finally acquiesced and <clears throat> called a friend of his who had a Baptist church, and we went over to a Baptist church and were baptized by a Methodist pastor um, into the church. So I do believe it's extremely important to follow up and be baptized, all right? And um, anyone who's listening to this, I just I encourage you, um, go ahead and make arrangements. Uh, for our church, um, you can go onto the website and you can sign up for the next baptism. And you can also show up at the baptism and just be baptized. Um, and um, we, um, we are blessed, excited uh, to, to do that. And we believe that, that, that there is a significant um, milestone that God wants you to have as that sign of laying down your old life and, and rising up anew. Salvation is not connected to baptism, so you don't have to be baptized to be saved, but you need to be baptized to be a good Christian, to do the things that Jesus told you to do. If you go, I want to be obedient to him, I want to live for him and do all the things he wants me to do, then baptism is one of those things that you should do. And, and I don't ever shame anyone when they say, I've been a Christian for 20 years and I'm now getting baptized. I just encourage them. I'm, I'm like, hey, th thanks for doing it now. I may say a little joke, like, you know, oh, so now, you, now you're being baptized. But I really want them, I'm, I'm excited for them um, when they do that. And it is always a significant moment. And it um, is very significant when you've just given your life to Christ and then you end up being baptized. All right. So we have another question from Vivian. Vivian says, in Genesis, why did God show favor to Abel's offering and not for Cain's? It is, um, is it because Abel's offering was the fatness portions? Cain only gave some what does it mean in Genesis 4-7? Thank you, Vivian. I appreciate that. Let's go there and look at it. Let's go see what it has to say. So, and I, and I, I think that we're going to be helped by uh, the passage. 
All right, so here we go. This is <clears throat> Genesis 4.1. Now, Adam knew his wife Cain. I mean, no, Adam knew his, and Adam knew Eve, his wife. And she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. And she bore again, and this time his brother Abel. Now, Abel was the keeper of the sheep, but Cain was the tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering uh, an offering of fruit of the ground of the Lord. Abel also brought an offering the firstborn of his flock. Their fat and the, uh, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? So this tells us that something's wrong with his heart and attitude if you do well. He didn't say if you bring me a better sacrifice. And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, literally crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with his brother Abel and it came in the past um, to pass when they were in a field that Cain rose against Abel and killed his brother and, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground, which is an interesting concept, that the voice of the blood cries out from the ground. So now you are cursed to the earth, which uh, has opened up its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you, uh, you will till the ground and it shall no longer yield a strength to you, a fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be upon the earth. And Cain said, um, Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth, and it will happen. Anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, uh, vengeance shall be taken upon him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him would kill him. All right? And so, and then it goes on to talk about more that, that Cain ended up doing. So, if you do right. So, Cain did not have the right heart in bringing the offering to God, obviously. Now, some point out that it was an animal sacrifice and Jesus became the lamb for us and that, that Abel brought the right sacrifice. But God doesn't say, if you brought, bring the right sacrifice, then you'll do okay. He says, if you, if you do good, then you will be accepted. Or if you do, yeah, if you do good, you will be accepted. Uh, let me go back here and read that again, exactly what it says. Um, it goes, uh, Slower said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? So it doesn't have, have anything to do with the offering, I don't believe. I think it has to do with his heart. So what God looks on is not what we give or what our offerings are, but what our motive is. Yeah, we're going to give to God, but we would need to have the right motive in when we give. And I don't think that Cain had the right heart. And that became evidenced by the fruit that he ended up killing his brother. I think had Abel's not been accepted because his heart was right, he would have not have killed his brother. But because Cain's heart wasn't right, he didn't end up killing him. So um, your question, um, so why does God show favor to one and not the other? Because it, it's the heart, I believe. And because Abel offered the fatness portion and Cain only gave some. Um, no, I don't, I don't think that that's what it is. Um, maybe in his stinginess, he held something back, and maybe you're right, that reference to the fat um, could be 
um, him giving everything to God or giving the very best to God, what would it be considered to be the best to God? And maybe maybe Cain didn't do that and maybe that was the problem in his heart. Um, but I don't think that we can get that directly from the question uh, or from the account. All right. So thank you, Vivian. I appreciate that. Hopefully that's helpful. Uh, we have another question. Uh, do you think we have to obey the who as they are being given authority over us as long as it doesn't go against God. They are issuing vaccine passport requirements, etc., starting next year. So, um, I had not heard of the vaccine passport requirements. Um, so there, are, there are consequences when you're not going to obey the government. And sometimes your convictions will lead you to the place where you take the consequences. And so if our government puts in place a vaccine mandate card requirement in order to travel, say, or to work in certain jobs, and you go, well, I'm not going to do that because I'm, I don't think it's right. I don't think they should do that. I think it takes away my freedom, which you may very well do. Then you will have consequences that will come from that. So, you have to look at your conviction, Kimberly, as to whether or not it's right or wrong for you to do it, and then weigh the, the weight of what you've got that's going to be done, and then make your decision. But yeah, I mean, the clear cut is that you follow the government until they, and, and, I, and I heard someone say this, until, they, until it makes you a bad Christian. Or, you know, the, you, you go against the Bible and what the Bible says. And so, having a vaccine mandate requirement, um, the, I, don't, I don't know enough about it to, to talk about whether or not I would be for it or against it. What would they, how would they mandate it? What would the requirements be? Um, issuing vaccine passport requirements, okay. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't. I don't know. I right now, as of today, which is June of two thousand twenty-three, I don't know of any requirements uh, that are out there. But I think that we have to make a decision. So if I if I have passport requirement that I need to get a vaccine, I'm not going to get it. Then I know I'm not going to be able to travel. There are going to be certain things that are going to be restricted, and that's the world we live in. Fair? No. But did your mother ever tell you life was fair? The Bible certainly doesn't tell us uh, that life is fair. So, um, we have another follow-up from Kimberly. Hopefully, that's helpful, Kimberly. From Kimberly, um, if God hates his enemy, isn't that condition? Um, the, word, the word for hate means to become an enemy or can be translated to be an enemy. So, God says, I began to hate them at Gilgal. So, they became his enemy at Gilgal. And so, is that a condition that God no longer loved them? if they become his enemy. Well, Jesus said, love your enemy. So God could love his enemy. So if it means that the Edomites in Malachi 1, that's the descendants of Esau, became an enemy of God, and, and God treated them as an enemy, doesn't mean he didn't love them, or didn't want them to come back, didn't want to do, you know, do good to them instead of wiping them off the face of the earth. Um, attack, um, just destroying them. God says, I take no delight in the death of the wicked. So if Jesus said, love your enemies, 
if someone becomes our enemy, then, well, I think that that, that may in itself be our answer there. Because if God says love our enemies, then he certainly loves his enemies. And if he's giving us that command, then he loves his enemies. And again, he demonstrated his love for us that way we were still sinners. So all kinds of wicked things people have done have had their love demonstrated to them. So no, I don't think it makes it conditional. I think it makes God just. And that Jesus satisfied the justice of God and that God forgives us our sins because we believe, because we trust in him. Uh, and those that have believed by faith are saved and those who trust in works are not saved. And so it's, I, I haven't moved myself into the love of God. I've just taken advantage of the love of God where those that have become God's enemy haven't done that. And I think that God still loves them. So I, I, yeah, I don't think, I don't think that's a condition. I think we could say that God's love is unconditional. Now, again, you're not going to find a Calvinist that's going to say that. They're going to argue that God's love is conditional. Um, but I can't see how God demonstrating his love for us while we're still sinners, becoming God's enemy, God saying, um, turn and live. Um, and I take no, no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I don't see how any of those makes it conditional if you if you turn and live. Now, if you are doing wicked things and you become his enemy, again, God's justice comes into play. And so you've got God's love against his justice, which is why he sent Jesus to the cross, because he had to be just. And so Jesus went to the cross and died in our place so that we could have eternal life and God demonstrating that love and justice together. And I think that we're getting into a, a love and justice kind of a thought, Kimberly. All right, so thank you. I hope that um, answers that question. If not, you can, if I'm just not being clear, you can go ahead and ask uh, another follow-up. All right. Um, right, and, and um, yeah, Rod says, um, amen, Pastor Jesus wanting us to grow in him more than financial gain. Exactly, God cares a lot more about us personally. Um, so we have a follow-up on tongues. We released a hot topic on tongues uh, this week. Um, you can see that on our YouTube page. You can see it uh, also at calvertucson.com. A uh, question, follow up on tongues. Can someone speaking in tongues also be an interpreter? Can you have more than one gift or just one gift? Um, no, I think you can have a, a cluster of gifts. Um, I think that Paul was a teacher and had the gift of teaching. Paul's also an evangelist, had the gift of evangelism. So I, I do think that you can have a cluster of gifts. And yes, I think that someone can have the gift of interpretation and can speak in tongues. Um, in all of my years of being involved in churches where the gifts were operating, I very rarely ever saw them op, you know, operating correctly. And that is when the interpretation is a, um, someone speaking to God. Because it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, if someone speaks in a tongue, it's him speaking mysteries to God. So it would be a praise, it would be a thanksgiving, it would be directed to him. In Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 10, um, in other places, um, in Acts chapter, I mean, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, um, it says speaking in tongues, of speaking in tongues, you give thanks well enough. We heard them worshiping and, and exalting God. 
So whenever tongues was heard, it was never a prophecy, but it was always an interpretation. So yes, um, I think you can have the gift of tongues and interpretation, and you've got to know there's an interpreter there, really, to be able to speak in tongues within a church. All right, so thank you very much, uh, Jari. I appreciate that. Uh, we have a question from James. Uh, James, good to see you. Good to have you here with us. James says, how was Jesus able to feed when preaching to 5,000 people? Is this not a miracle? Yes. Yes, uh, it is definitely a miracle. Uh, of the miracles that Jesus did, um, walking on water, stilling the sea, feeding the 5,000, uh, he's showing something with each one of those miracles. And in the feeding of the 5,000, he takes what this little boy has and he's able to multiply that. So he takes our gifts and what we give him and multiplies it. Paul said to the Corinthians when he was talking to them about giving a gift for the church at Corinth, he said, I, not that I, I seek your money, but I seek you and the fruit that abounds to your account and that God would multiply your gift. And so we see in the feeding of the 5,000 that God is able to take what little I have and he is able to multiply that to other people. And so you might feel like, you know, I don't have much. What is this among so many? But God's able to take it and multiply it and to make it effective. And that's the lesson that we learn from the feeding of the 5,000 um, and the, the multiple times that, that Jesus was feeding the groups of people. But they were for a sign to point to certain things not to provide miracles and food for people. So um, when they continued to seek for signs to seek for food, then he rebuked them uh, because of that. All right, so yes, it was a miracle. Um, a miracle would be defined as something that breaks natural laws. Being able to multiply fish would be breaking a natural law. Now I can break a natural law right now. There's gravity here, but I can pick up my iPhone. So I just broke the, a natural law, but I had, there's a, I had an entity who did it, so it's not a miracle. God is in the spiritual realm and hasn't made himself highly known to mankind. He's made himself known, but not highly known. And therefore, when he enters into the world in the miraculous, he's pointing to something. And the Bible says they are signs. The miracles would be signs. There are signs and wonders. So people would wonder and signs, and signs point you to something else. And so the sign, uh, that miracle points us to other things. All right, thank you, James. I really appreciate that. Um, we have a question from Brandon. Brandon, good to see you. Brandon says, um, if we should pray, preach, and teach in the name of Jesus Christ, why not baptize? I agree that it isn't wrong to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but churches that baptize in this manner tend to never baptize in the name of Jesus, which is what we see in the recorded baptisms in the New Testament. Um, so, I'm, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure that when it says they baptize them in the name of Jesus, that they weren't baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'm not sure that they, they weren't doing that. I, 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 I hear that argument, and there are people that say you need to be baptized in the name of Jesus only, which of course excludes the Holy Spirit and excludes the Father. Jesus said, when you baptize, baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I think that they summed that up 
by making a statement in the book of Acts that they baptized them in the name of Jesus, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They've summed up that by saying in the name of Jesus. I don't know that they baptized in the name, actual name of Jesus, rather than summing that up, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we want to look at the directive that we've been given in the Bible. Um, so I want to come back, um, Brandon, to the descriptions in the Bible and the prescriptions. So descriptions tell us what happened, prescriptions tell us what to do. So let's just say that the early church did baptize in the name of Jesus. Would God have recognized that baptism? Well, certainly by the faith of the person that came and was baptized. However, is that telling us that we have to do it? Because it describes it. If they indeed, if, if I'm wrong and they didn't sum it up by saying be baptized in the name of Jesus and they were baptized in the name of Jesus, it, it doesn't override the directive that we get. The prescription, go out, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, we have some people in our church that come out of the Jesus-only movement and have had like issues saying, I don't know, you know, my family thinks if I don't get baptized in the name of Jesus, I haven't really been baptized, so what should I do? And in the past, I baptized in the name of the Father, in the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit and baptized so that they could be baptized in the name of Jesus. And I don't do that regularly. I don't do that generally. But I feel that for conscience sake and maybe for family sake, when someone tells me um, I come out of the Jesus only movement and I'm thinking my, my family's really going to give me, you know, they're going to ask what name I was baptized in. So I do it in the name of the Father, the Son, Jesus, and the name of the Holy Spirit. I don't do it all the time, but I will do it in those particular cases because it gets their family off of their back and plus for conscience sake. And I did say in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, um, I just added Jesus and the name of the Son is Jesus. Um, and so I, I think that, well, my own conviction is that I can do that. Now, some people might take exception to that, but I have a conviction that I can do that for, for their sake. But no, I don't think that the fact that they did it makes it a prescription for us. I think you go back, Brandon, to what the Bible says to do, and you don't read the descriptions of what people did. For example, in Acts chapter 4, they're bringing gifts and laying them before the feet of the apostles. And Jesus said, when you give, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. So the description of them doing that doesn't prescribe us to do it. And so even if they, in the book of Acts, baptized in the name of Jesus, we don't find a prescription to do that. It's just descriptive. And you don't want to start building your theology upon descriptions. Otherwise, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. All right, so thank you. And as always, uh, be willing to take a follow-up with that. It's a nice thing about doing Q&As the way that we're doing them. Um, we can have a little bit of interaction and even banter. I mean, and even if you don't agree, then, you know, hey, there are a lot of things that are, that, that are not necessary to be a Christian. And we put our own opinions up so highly that when someone disagrees with them, we get hurt or we get upset. Instead of understanding, you know what, I, I may believe one thing and you may believe something else, but we both believe Jesus died for our sins. We both believe that he rose from the dead. Um, we believe the basics of Christianity, and so that's all good. So I'm, I'm never afraid when someone challenges me on what I believe. Um, I think that insecurity causes people to respond 
in a in an angry, harsh way. And there are people that, man, if you disagree with them, they will let you know. Did you disagree with me? And they'll really be upset. And I'm I'm not upset. I I'm confident enough in what I believe to be able to have somebody disagree with me. And I'm confident enough that I may be wrong in certain things. And so I want to know more what the scripture says. And if I can be shown that I'm wrong, I'm willing to be shown that I'm wrong. So just all of that to say that, Brendan, if, if you have a little pushback on that, I'm fine with that. So give me, get, bring it on. Give me the pushback, all right? Um, I appreciate that. We can have a conversation. And I love that taking questions like this and an interaction back and forth, uh, I think is, uh, is really good. So we can, you know, I really encourage follow-up questions when you've got them, all right? So Albert says, um, were the plagues of God against Pharaoh close to one another. In the fifth plague, the livestock are killed, and by the seventh plague, the livestock are being brought inside due to hail. Yeah, so does it say, um, does it say that the livestock, I, I do believe that they are fairly close to each other. I don't know how close, um, but within a period of a, a few months. And does it say in the fifth plague that all the livestock is killed? And I think that that's, that's really gonna be your key. And I'm not sure where to go in Exodus to find that. Um, I'm not sure where where the livestock are being killed in in there. Um, and I and I don't know that we are told um, how far they are. I got the plague of frogs here. I got the fifth plague, livestock diseased. How about that? It only took me a little bit to find it. Let's take a look. Here, um, Albert, and as always, Albert, you got great questions. I appreciate that. Let's go ahead and take a look and see if we can figure this out. So, then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and tell him, thus says the Lord um, of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them back, the hand of the Lord will be on your cattle in the field, on your horses, your donkeys and camels, on the oxen and the sheep, the very severe pestilence and the Lord will make a difference between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, and nothing shall die of all that belongs to the children of Israel. Then the Lord appointed a set time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. So the Lord did this thing on the next day, and all the livestock, well, there's all the livestock. So um, the word all in the Bible, all the livestock. Certainly, all doesn't always mean all in every single last one. It can and might very well here mean that, but it certainly can't mean a few. It's got to mean a vast majority. And let me give you an example. In the New Testament, when it says that, that, that King Herod was upset and all of Jerusalem with him, well, the vast majority of them, but there were some, I'm sure, that didn't know in Jerusalem that he was upset. So that he was upset, upset the people of Jerusalem, but maybe not all of them. So all the livestock of Egypt died, but the livestock of the children of Israel, um, not one died. And there may be part of your answer. They're slaves, and what could they had could be taken by the Egyptians. The Pharaoh sent, and indeed not even one of the livestock of the Israelites was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh became hard, and he did not let the people go. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a couple of things there. Um, I think... Does all mean every single one of them, or does it mean the vast majority of them? Uh, and I don't know how to qualify that word. 
not knowing Hebrew, how to go back and, and check it out. It's certainly something that I would love to be able to spend a little bit more time looking into. Um, Albert, and then would they be able to take the livestock that had belonged to the slaves, the Hebrews, and take it for themselves? Um, is this a contradiction in the Bible? Seventh plague, all the livestock are being brought inside due to the hail. Um, and another, the fifth, the livestock are all killed. Yeah, so that's um, uh, really interesting, Albert. Um, interesting. I think there are ways that we can look at that and not see a contradiction, uh, but um, I think it's a, it's a great question. All right, so we have a question from Rod. Um, Rod says, some churches believe in order to be baptized, you must be a commissioned church. Is that biblical? Well, what we want to do, well, I guess here's, here's how we would answer that question. What do, what is our authority? Is the authority that I'm to live by the Calvary Chapel affiliation that I'm a part of? Or is my authority in scripture? And the churches that believe you have to be commissioned um, are going to be more like your the Catholic Church, Orthodox Church. Um, there are some churches that believe you have to be baptized by someone who's baptized by someone who's baptized by one of the apostles. I don't know how you would go all the way back to be able to get back to that, but they believe that they have that. Um, I, I don't believe that. I believe that some churches would teach that you have to be a member, um, that you have to fill out a paper and make a commitment to the church in order for there to be membership. Um, I, I don't see a formal membership like that being biblical either. So, yeah, I would, um, I, I would say, and I think that like when you go back to the Catholic, the Greek Orthodox, um, other churches in that category, they have a tradition uh, and also um, commands that can be made by, by the Pope, by others that are in authority. And so they put tradition up as high as other things. So I would, I, I would say I, I disagree with it. I don't think it's biblical. And we want to do what we can do um, through the Bible. But um, good, good question, and I appreciate it. All right. So um, as always, you can ask a follow up to that question. Um, so uh, Kimberly has a follow up, um, and uh, this isn't uh, this isn't our government. Biden gave authority to who? A global organization. Uh, okay. Um, yeah, I remember when all of this was, yeah, I do remember when all of this was coming down. Um, and let me, let me do some, just let me do some, a little bit of research on it. Um, and let me do a little bit of research on it. Uh, not our authority. So are we going to be, are we going to be an authority to who, if who says, if who makes the mandate and our government goes along with it, are we still not obligated to follow our government that gave the authority to the who, or to who, to the who, like the rock band, uh, to who, um, then are we obligated to follow after them? Um, so I, I guess we need to get into the details of exactly what's happening and exactly what those consequences are. And as far as I know, this hasn't happened. As far as I know, 
there's there's no official move for it to happen. And I don't know what it would take to be able to, to make that happen, but I know that people are concerned about it. So let me go ahead and do a little bit of uh, research on that. If if I'm wrong, write the word question in front of it, but but let me know, give me, you know, uh, someplace for me to go to be able to, to see um, where this is actually happening. Um, yeah, so we, yeah, we can, yeah, I, I understand, and, and, and Kimberly says, thank you, I get it. I had a different definition of unconditional. Um, yeah, I get that, uh, that, you know, we can understand things like that in a different way. Um, uh, it's a song, okay. So, um, I just, uh, getting sidetracked by, um, the, und, uh, by the, uh, the side chat here. Um, but yeah, we did just put the hot topic out on tongues, uh, two days ago on Monday. All right. So if you are here for the first time, really glad to have you here. Uh, if you have a question about the Bible, apologetics, which is the defense of the faith, uh, if you um, have questions on how to interact perhaps with non-believers or the Christian life or the nuances, which is what these kind of Q&As are so good on. The general questions we can answer pretty quickly, but when you start getting into the nuances of life, uh, things can become more difficult and um, we, can be able, we are able to interact um, with them based upon those nuances. So we have a follow-up from Rod. Rod says, isn't baptism an outward expression of an inward change? Yes, I believe it is, yes. A public confession of a person's inward change. Shouldn't any believer be able to baptize someone else? Uh, yes, I don't see a problem with that. I think if you, if you are a genuine believer, you can baptize someone else. So you, you do not have to have a pastor. There's never a place in the Bible where it says that a pastor is the one who has to baptize. Um, in fact, I think if we go to Philip, Philip is a deacon who baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch. Now you say, well, he held a position in the church. All right, and he did. Um, deacons took care of the physical needs, but obviously he was spiritual. And I believe that any true believer can baptize another believer. Yes, I believe that. I don't believe there's any restrictions ever in the Bible put on um, who can baptize another person. So I think your thinking is, is super sound. Uh, we want to be biblical with what we do. And um, yeah, I realize who the um, um, who is, who the who is. Um, I realize who who is. And um, I do know that some bit ago there was some mm, possibilities that we would be giving something over to them. I don't know that anything's come to pass, maybe. And um, what I'm looking for is maybe a direction as to where I can get some information. Has this happened? is what I really want to know. Can you point me to an article um, somewhere that does actually say that it happened? All right, so uh, Brandon has a follow-up. I understand that the prescriptive sense, uh, we are first told that Peter spoke being filled with the Spirit, giving his words authority and not just something someone simply spoke. I think both methods are fine, but I'm perplexed as to either side of um, being dogmatic about the opposite. Would you say it's as wrong to just use the name of Jesus? I would not want to do that, um, Brandon. And Brand I can still see your question, by the way, Brandon. Um, I would not want to do that because 
I've been given the direction by Jesus. Go out, make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Peter being filled with the Spirit doesn't make everything they're doing right. Like when they were taking gifts that were being brought in and laid down to, at the feet of the apostles that led to Ananias and Sapphira dying and no one else joining them. And Jesus saying, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. He's been filled with the Holy Spirit. A little bit later on, Paul is going to withstand Peter to his face, he says, because he was wrong. Because he was eating with the Gentiles and when the brethren from James came down, he pulled away and so he rebuked him openly. So there's no way that we can say because Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit that he does what's right. I mean, we just can't think that through. Because I'm filled with the Holy Spirit doesn't mean I do everything right. Certainly not. And neither do you, Brandon. So, um, here's where I'm dogmatic. And I think that there are, are certain areas too big dogmatic on, and there's certain areas not to be. But here's where I, I'm, I'm dogmatic. I think that if you, and the Jesus-only movement is cult-like, and, and if I'm not mistaken, I'm pretty sure they believe things about Jesus that aren't right. And if you do something that the Bible says not to do and you make that mandatory and tell people they're not really saved if they don't do it, then it's wrong. That's the problem. The problem is, is they're doing it and saying, you're not really saved unless you're baptized in the name of Jesus only. And so you've got to be rebaptized by us and we're the only ones that really believe it. And they cut out how much of the other church by saying it. So, I do believe that you can become dogmatic on something like this. A false teaching that you are saved by being baptized in the name of Jesus. Now, if you're just talking about, if you take the, the Jesus-only people out of it, and you say, someone's in the backyard, they baptize somebody in the name of Jesus. Or they baptize somebody in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Would one of them be wrong over the other? I don't know that it would be. God would recognize it. It's like, do you dunk? Do you pour? Do you sprinkle? But when you put it in the context of a church that believes that if you have to be baptized in the name of Jesus only to be saved, you are now adding to the gospel of Christ. And you are now putting requirements on what salvation is. And that's why I would end up being dogmatic, Brandon, about it. Because there's nothing that I can do to be saved. And if I'm going to choose one way or another, then I'm going to choose the way that the Bible says to do it. And again, we don't know that when they said we're baptizing in the name of Jesus, that they didn't mean in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We don't know exactly how they did that. It doesn't say that. You're just assuming that they said in the name of Jesus and not in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and just made their referencing and baptizing in the name of Jesus. We don't know that for sure. And to make that a salvation issue becomes really, really, I think, dangerous. Um, it has happened, thank you. Starts May of 24, um, Dr. John Campbell on YouTube. All right, well, that gives me a place to start um, with Dr. John Campbell. Um, YouTube, I generally, here I am on YouTube saying this, but I generally don't use them as an authority uh, because I, you know, you want, you want something that's going to be a little more sound than a, a YouTube video and somebody saying it because anybody can say anything on a YouTube video. Unfortunately, when it comes to news, anybody can say anything on the news. So, um, let me, Kimberly, go ahead and do some research on that 
and see if this is going to happen? And do we know what it, what it means? Do we know if they've just been given power to say that you got to have a vaccine mandate? Are they saying that you got to get the, the coronavirus va- vaccine in order to get a passport? So I have a lot of questions about it that um, that I need to look at and, and really see. And, and, it, and, and a lot of that depends on whether or not we would be, as, as a Christian, go, I'm not going to do that. I think I could go down, I think I could draw a line and say, if our government says, if our government, which is ungodly, which is a secular government, says you have to be, you have to have this vaccination in order to travel. And I don't want to get it. It just means I'm, I have a conviction I'm not going to travel. That would be the ultimate end to that question. Do I like it? No. Do I think it's wrong? Yes. But as a Christian, I would make a decision and then wouldn't travel if that's the decision that I made. So I think that we would have to come down to do it. Now, would I vote for someone who, if this is is true and it's going to happen, and somebody comes along and says, um, hey, look, as one of my platforms, I'm going to reverse this. I want to turn this around. It's not going to happen in the United States. Would I vote for that person? Yes over a person who said that they would let this happen? Yes. Because the person that's going to let this happen is probably not going to align themselves with what my feelings are. So just talking about Robert Furrow as the individual and as the Christian, I would vote for someone who would look to turn it over if indeed um, it has happened. And I'm not saying that it hasn't, Kimberly. I'm just saying a YouTube channel is not going to really give us um, all, all the all the information. So I'm gonna take one more question. It's five o'clock. I need to get ready. I've got a sermon here um, on out of Revelation chapter 14. Um, we are looking at uh, there's six seven previews uh, that are there. I see some other questions coming in um, here. Rod says, um, as Christians, we need to respect those in authority above us, other than voting and speaking against sin. How are we supposed to be good servants? All right, Rod, so we may pick this question up. You know what I'm going to do because it is five o'clock and we're done. Um, I'm going to pick up this question again in our next study. We'll talk more about it. All right. And um, uh, I appreciate you guys um, entering your questions here. I'll come back and take a look at them to be able to use them in further uh, Q&As. But maybe you find yourself walking close to Christ, committed to the word of God, delighting in the Lord, walking in the Spirit, and obeying the authority of Scripture. All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God, is profitable for reproof, for correction, for doctrine, that the man of God could be thoroughly equipped, lacking in nothing. And the God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. Stay close to Him. I appreciate you guys. Love you. And we will talk later on. We've got a service in an hour, Revelation chapter 14. I think you're going to find some things in there uh, very interesting. All right? So I'll just kind of throw that out there as a teaser. All right, God bless you guys. I'm out.